Hello and welcome everyone. How are we doing? Good? Thanks for your patience. I know it takes a long time to get a bunch of people in a room, uh, especially here at uh, reInvent. There's a whole heap of people walking around everywhere. Let me just throw this in presenter mode. Okay, this is advanced VPC design and new capabilities for Amazon VPC. Has anyone seen any of my other sessions this week? A couple of people? Okay. This is almost a continuation from uh, one of the partner sessions I did on Tuesday, uh, VPC fundamentals. So we basically dove into what it means to create a VPC, what a VPC looks like. There's been a lot of changes in the last 12 months. We've released a whole bunch of features. Even I was updating the slide deck this morning for new features that uh, launched. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening. Uh, so this is almost a continuation from there. So we're going to take a little bit of a journey and uh, rewind the clock about 12 months and see what things look like and then step through each of the new feature releases. And uh, the whole idea here is what changes when a new feature comes out. So we release something like IPv6, do things change? If we release something like um, inter-region peering, do things change? Do you need to design differently within AWS? So I'm Matt Lewis. I'm a principal solution architect here at AWS. I've been here about four years. This is my fourth reInvent. Um, this is the biggest one yet, uh, so it's pretty awesome stuff. I'm pretty excited to be here. So firstly, we're across a whole bunch of hotels this year, so I know you've got your walking shoes with you, right? Um, I think I reach my steps on this thing at about 10 a.m. every single day. So that said, I had to link it into my Prezo somehow. Let's take a walk down VPC memory lane. So 12 months ago, what does a VPC look like? Well, we've got AWS. You want to use EC2 and VPC. And I'm going to go a little bit quick here because um, so normally we have a 30-slide cap per hour. I've got 92 slides. <laughs> I promise it's not going to be death by PowerPoint, but we've got a lot of stuff to roll through. Okay, so VPC, we've got some availability zones, fault domains, some subnets that you create. They're tied to availability zones. This is all entry-level stuff. This is a 300-level session, so it's going to get deeper than this. Your instances, they run in subnets, great. Public subnets, private subnets, services outside of the VPC, things like S3, SQS, DynamoDB, things that don't get addressed within your VPC. You've got an IGW, an internet gateway, great. A routing table, you can send traffic to an IGW. You can uh, connect to the internet. You can talk to other services, awesome. This is fine, cool. You've probably got a NAT gateway. Instead of using NAT instances, thank you very much. I don't like NAT instances very much. They're a strictly coupled system. We've got virtual private endpoints, talking to S3 and DynamoDB, privately talking to things outside of your VPC from within your VPC without having to go via the IGW. VPN and Direct Connect, this is all going to be relevant as we roll through this thing. VPC peering, obviously, we're going to talk about that a lot. And VPC flow logs. So this is what a VPC architecture looks like. 12 months ago, this is basically how you would build things. So what's changed in the last 12 months? Well, let's do a bit of a rewind. I'm not going to sit here and play a video, guys. Let's uh, see what happened last year. At reInvent, we launched IPv6. So does that change things for you? You've now got IPv6 capability. Let's have a look what it, uh, what it looks like within a VPC. And I apologize for the text. I've tried to zoom in as much as possible where I can. Some of the things are still a little bit hard to read, though. So within your VPC, you can uh, create a, a CEDAR address range or an address block. You've now got this option 
where you can assign a slash 56 IP address or an IPv6 address. And that's out of Amazon's public pool of IPs. So if you enable that, you get given a public IP range within your VPC. So now you can address subnets out of that range. Really straightforward. I don't want to spend much time on this. But does that change your architecture? Does it change the way you do things? Well, if you want to use IPv6, absolutely. It's really a dual stack thing, though. So IPv6 is one of those things that we see as more an, an architectural addition than something that's going to massively change things. And you're not going to have to uh, rip out your infrastructure and swap it out with IPv6. You can allocate IPv6 and, and go from there. So we can now provision subnets. And you can specify, um, oh yeah, we've got a bit of a zoom in here. You can specify, say we've got a dot one here. You can allocate that to a subnet, a dot two for another subnet. Pretty straightforward stuff. All right, the first couple here, I do apologize because they're pretty high level, but we do need to talk about them because firstly, security group rule descriptions, huge, massive. It's such an easy thing. Why didn't we do it years ago? I know the reason why, but. Um, Okay, so we've got a security group. Now, you can have a description for your security group rules. Awesome. Um, thanks. <laughs> I didn't do it, but thanks. Pretty awesome stuff. Um, now, at least when I create a bunch of security groups and I come back a day later, I know what the hell they are. Um, because before I had no idea, I had these rules and I don't want to remove rules because what if someone else went in there and opened that rule? But now I know, so it's great. And I'm sure you, you folks are very happy as well. Okay, so does that change things? Again, it's an architectural addition. So before security groups were unwieldy, now you can add descriptive text. Very straightforward. Again, it's more of an addition. Let's keep rolling here. So we've talked about IPv6, we've talked about security group rule descriptions. New features, sure, fair enough. Expand your existing VPC. So this is a pretty cool one. You've got an initial seeder address range. and. Before expand your VPC range, I'd have to tell someone, if you create a VPC, a VPC with a CEDA address range, be very careful because you can't expand it. You can't uh, grow your VPC range. You have to delete, destroy, and recreate your VPC. I don't like telling people to destroy the stuff they've just built. So now you can add an additional CEDA address range, provision subnets out of that. Notice we've got a 10.1, and now we've allocated a 10.2 slash 16. Pretty straightforward we've now got an additional CEDAR address range. I've got a few slides in here to see uh, what it looks like, but any architectural changes? Well, there's, there's a couple. But first, it's pretty straightforward. You've got your uh, VPC net 305, you've got a CEDAR address range. You go up here to actions, let's edit our CEDARs. Great, fine, sure. Add an IPv4 CEDAR, excellent. We type in our new address range, click OK, away we go. We now have two CEDAR address ranges in our VPC that we can address from. We've doubled the size of our VPC. So before VPC size was constant, you needed to delete and create. No thank you. Now you can add up to five ranges to your VPC. So finally, and what I'm seeing customers do now is, and you should be doing this anyway, use your IP addressing table, use your IP addressing schema, and allocate address ranges or CEDAR address ranges to your VPC. So you've got a slash 16, you allocate that to your VPC. Now you can go in there and allocate more addresses to that. You could size things, you could do half of a slash 16. You could do a smaller a CEDAR address range if you wanted to and add to that. Um, I've always also seen um, a few other creative things where there's been uh, overlapping IPs with ENIs and, and uh, a new CEDAR address range and a new block and having an ENI on an instance in that um, new subnet as well. So. Pretty cool stuff. Some considerations here, though. It's not all 
fun. There are a few things you need to uh, think about. So we use RFC 1918 ranges for internal services, like workspaces. I'll pick on workspaces. When you assign workspaces and attach it to a VPC, we'll look at the original CEDA address range of your VPC and say, you're using a 10, oh, we're going to go and use a 172 or something else. So what that means is you can't then go and expand your VPC and say, I'd like to use a 172, please, because we're already using that for workspaces. So the idea here is, based upon your original CEDA address range, defines what you can actually allocate. So you'll get this error message here if you try to allocate anything that's not acceptable. So if you're with a 10.1, for example, you can add a 10.2, a 10.3, a 10.4, 10.47. That's fine. But if you went and tried to add a 172, you'd probably get this error. And there's a huge table online. I'm not going to show it here. It's massive. But there's a whole bunch of rules around, OK, here's what you can and can't add to your VPC. Let's move further along in time. I had a bunch of cool graphics in this deck. Um, they pulled them all out because we didn't have the privileges to use them. I had a picture of a Big Ben here, and they gave me this clock instead. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty cool, but uh, it's no Big Ben. Uh, anyhow, uh, VPN update, custom pre-shared keys, and inside tunnel IP. So this was an update we did to a VPN. And we're going to get more into um, changes to your architectures as opposed to, hey, this is just an addition. It's a cool thing I can do now. Because that's the interesting stuff. That's where I like to work. Alrighty, so you've got an on-premise, you've got an AWS deployment, this is VPN 101. You've got a virtual private gateway, you've got a CGW, or customer gateway, or a CPD. It's really called a CPD in the real world. In AWS terms, we call it a customer gateway. You've got the internet, you've got two tunnels, you've got an IPsec tunnel. These are the three things that you need to create a VPN tunnel, by the way. A virtual private gateway, a CGW, or you define the CGW, and then you create a VPN connection. Pretty straightforward. So AWS, up until recently, would allocate the slash 30 address range for each of the IPsec tunnels out of a, I think it's a 169.254 slash 16, maybe, address range. So we would allocate slash 30, 30 addresses out of that with only one pre-shared key per VPN connection. And there's two, two actual IPsec tunnels per VPN connection here. So the tunnel range, address range is allocated by Amazon, same pre-shared key for both tunnels. So now, and I'll tell you why this is important in just a second. But if we create a VPN connection, name of VPN connection, select your VGW, define your CGW, choose static or BGP. Hopefully BGP, I like BGP, but static's cool too. But now tunnel options, you can specify your tunnel range that you'd like to use and your pre-shared key per connection. So what we're seeing happen was when our customers, and I have a customer that has over 100 VPN connections, they pay $36.50 a month per v VPN connection, and um, they were thinking about using instances, but then you've got to manage the instances, you've got to have some kind of high availability, the VGW's managed by us to a certain degree. Every nth tunnel they would spin up, they'd get an address clash. It's about every eighth tunnel. I think there's some math and probability and logic that goes into that, but... So basically, now you can specify the range. Now, I've got a 10 here. I'm trying to configure a 10 slash 30. That'll actually throw an error because you do need to use the 169.254 address. Uh, that's the address range we use for IPsec tunnels. Pretty standard, but you can choose those ranges. So what was basically happening, and okay, how does it change my architecture? Let's dive into that. But what was basically, oh, there's some more awesome graphics to replace my really awesome images I had earlier. That's okay. Um, okay, so before AWS allocated tunnel IPs, if you wanted to deploy some firewalls in AWS, is anyone here using a transit VPC? A few folks? Okay. 
Maybe we should talk about transit VPCs. I love talking about transit VPCs. So we'll, I'll show you what a transit VPC is. Basically, we've got a set of firewalls here, these blue things, and we've got them inside a VPC. We've got a route, a default route, a 000 slash zero, which is over here, down here, in case you guys can't see it, via the firewalls. So we've got an active standby type arrangement here. We're maybe doing some um, monitoring one firewalls, monitoring the other, and doing an API call to shift routes and that sort of thing. To make that a little bit easier, what our customers are doing is using a transit VPC where you basically have a set of firewalls in another VPC. You then use the VGW with IPsec and BGP. Now you don't need to have an API call. You don't need to monitor the firewalls. You're reliant on BGP for your failover. So you've got two tunnels. BGP on a VGW is an active standby. And then BGP is going to fail over if one of the firewalls fails. So that all seems well and dandy. There's some limitations. There's a bunch of caveats around the VGW and throughput of the VGW is about, I think it's 1 to 1.5, or I think the official number might be 1.25 gig uh, at the moment. But it gives you some redundancy. However, what customers would like to do is instead of deploying a set of firewalls in every single VPC and paying the cost of the firewalls for every VPC, they'd like to have a centralized transit VPC which has one set of firewalls and then multiple VPCs that then transit through that um, transit VPC. So what happens is with this AWS allocated slash 30 address range, every nth tunnel we get an address clash. So then you'd have to use things like VRFs and multiple route targets, and you'd have to leak or advertise leak multiple route targets from one VRF to another. We're talking about old school uh, networking stuff on, on something like a Cisco CSR inside a transit VPC, a whole bunch of stuff. That all goes away with you being able to allocate your slash 30 tunnel IP address ranges. So this might seem like a small one, but it's actually quite a big one for a lot of customers. Also, back to my customer that has over 100 VPN connections back to their on-premises they were getting clashes, and it's pretty hard to manage. But now you can have many on-premises going back to a VGW and allocate those IPs as you see fit, hopefully using an IP addressing schema. I used to work for a large service provider. Uh, we basically had the largest internet backbone in the southern hemisphere, and we used an Excel spreadsheet for our IP management software. <laughs> I'm sure there's others out there that do that, but um, I'm not sure what they use now. That was a couple of years ago, many years ago. OK, let's move on. Let's uh, move along to private link. So we're, we're discussing VPC features here, and private link's an interesting one. And, and the tie here from transit VPC to private link is there's a feature that was launched uh, actually this week to have service provider private link, and I'll, I'll talk about that. But before private link, we had VPC endpoints. So we basically had a prefix list, and it's hard to see here, but we've got these prefix lists here via VPC, VPCE, or virtual private uh, endpoint. And that's pointing for S3 routes via this, this thing over here, this virtual private endpoint. So Amazon DynamoDB, S3, you'd have a virtual private endpoint. You then have a route that points to that. So that's cool. You don't need an IGW. You don't need an elastic IP. You just basically route traffic up to this virtual private endpoint. Now, before private link, the new version of private link, to reach the AWS API, you'd have to go via an IGW. So you'd have to route traffic up into the public realm. The EC2 API is a public service that sits in the public realm. What if you've got instances that need to do an API call and you're like, well, I don't need an elastic IP on this thing. I don't want to open it up to the rest of the world. Well, in comes private link. So, and I'm just deleting some stuff here in the thing, no major changes. All right, so now 
We have uh, API endpoints for EC2 and Elastic Load Balancing, Kinesis Streaming, or Kinesis Stream, sorry, AWS Service Catalog, and Amazon EC2 Systems Manager, and they're represented inside your VPC as an interface. So what happens is we basically take an interface or an ENI, Elastic Network Interface, we place it inside your VPC, we take an address via DHCP from your VPC, and we allocate it to that ENI, and then um, we'll give you a um, NFQDN, or a, sorry, a domain, um, sorry, a C name, uh, you know what I mean, I've got a slide here on that, that you reference to talk back to the EC2 endpoint or the EC2 API. So with each private link represented as an elastic IP, you basically don't need to do any routing table updates because it's in your VPC, which is pretty cool. So we don't need to manage these prefix lists. Now, the prefix list thing isn't bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to go away or anything like that. Prefix lists are, you've got S3 and S3 grows, and we add more public IPs to S3. A prefix list is just a mechanism for us to manage all of those IPs to say, this thing, this entity, is representative of all the current endpoints in S3, and if you want to route to those, we're gonna send you via the virtual private endpoint. The interface, on the other hand, is really um, an interface, and you can just hit that and get sent to um, the appropriate service. This isn't an old thing. We actually do the same thing for Lambda. And um, we released Lambda inside a VPC. I think it was just before reInvent last year. It could have been the reInvent before, um, a while ago anyway. So we use a, a network interface for that. Prior to that, you'd have to go out via an IGW and hit public EC2 elastic IPs for Lambda. And if Lambda wanted to do a call into your VPC, you'd have to open up the VPC to the whole EC2 address range. Not good. Interfaces inside your VPC, much better. So the uh, interfaces or the private links are representative by a domain such as this. What does it look like in the console? This is available. You, you folks can jump in there and, and configure this. This is super small, so I'll zoom in a bit. So the old type looks like this. It's a gateway. So this is for DynamoDB. That's the, uh, the top one here. So we've got a type gateway. The new type is this type interface. So you just select which one you'd like to attach to your VPC and away you go. So now we have private link for service providers. Now where this comes in is you've got a customer VPC, you've got some stuff in there, you've got a service provider VPC. Now this could be um, a SaaS provider, maybe like a Splunk or someone. They're running inside a VPC that they want to connect to your VPC and you'd like to have this as a service. So you've got an application or a SaaS that's running inside this, this service provider VPC. Then we have a network load balancer, an NLB. Is anyone using NLB? A couple of hands. NLB is awesome. I love NLB. Check it out. Um, ALB, CLB, yeah, sure, they're cool. But um, I work in the network layer, and network load balancer is, is pretty sweet. OK, so we've got an NLB. Then we have this endpoint that's attached to the customer VPC. And basically what happens is traffic sent to the endpoint will get sent to the NLB and then um, onto the instances that the service provider manages. So the service provider basically configures a service or registers a service and then shares that with the customer. The customer then creates a, an endpoint that's associated with this service and attaches it to their VPC. So it's pretty cool. It's, a, it's like a, a method of connecting to customer VPCs. And what I, wa uh, what I was seeing SaaS providers do previously were 
uh, a VGW, they'd connect via an IPsec tunnel to the VGW, and then you'd have the one SaaS provider, and they're connecting to many VPCs, and uh, every customer decides to use a 10.0.0.0/16 as their VPC address range, and now the provider has to do some kind of NATing, and they're deciding to use some form of virtual router, or then they decide they just want to have an elastic IP, and then you reach that SaaS service via that public elastic IP. It's all public again. Like let's let's make it a little more private. So hence private link. Alrighty. So it's again represented by the um, by the name here. So VPC uh, VPCE. We've got a two two foo dot amazon dot com. That's uh, bogus, by the way. <laughs> okay. So you no longer need an IGW to access things like the EC two uh, CLI. Awesome. And you can privately connect to uh, providers services or service provider through an endpoint. Alrighty. We've got some other cool stuff coming up. Does anyone here like Direct Connect? few people. Okay, we've got some Direct Connect stuff coming up. Before we get to Direct Connect, bring your own BGP ASN on the VGW. So if you've got AWS and you've got an on-premise, you'd like to connect the two together with uh, Direct Connect or a um, VPN with BGP. Direct Connect, you need BGP. VPN, you can do static routing, obviously. The AWS Autonomous System Number, or ASN, was always, generally, most cases, not all, uh, 7224. So it's a public ASN that we have registered, and that's what our, the BGP peer will have. I think Singapore was different, Dublin was different. Dublin still had 7224 in the uh, AS path. In any case, on-premises, you normally choose your ASN. You could be public, you could be private. There's a few rules around that. So pretty straightforward. Now you can configure in the VGW, you can configure your own ASN. Now when I say your own, it's something you make up, uh, it's private. We don't allow public ASNs to be configured because we have no means of checking them. But you choose the public, or you, sorry, you choose the ASN for the AWS side. Let's see what it looks like. So you create a virtual private gateway. Got some pretty swanky animations here. Okay, and uh, we're creating a virtual private gateway. You put a name in, Net 405. Actually, it should be Net 305, oops. We create a custom ASN, and you type in your ASN. Pretty straightforward. We create the virtual private gateway. Now, I always reference a, something like this, an ID with the last three digits, otherwise it gets confusing. I don't want to sit here and read the whole thing out. So we've got a VGW395, the last three digits on this, on this thing. We close that. And now, if we have a look at this uh, VGW, we have a look at that ID, you'll notice the ASN on the Amazon side is 65001. So you've now chosen that ASN. So the AWS network side will be 65001. So you've um, specified that. Pretty cool. So does this change your architecture? Well, I mean, it can help. So what we are seeing was we've got AWS 7224. We've got on-premise, in this case, a 65501. We had customers then going back to AWS. So they were using their corporate network to go from AWS region to corporate backbone via Direct Connects to AWS region. Or they were using a VPN, or they were using, um, uh, well, they're basically using BGP. And what happens here is BGP loop avoidance will say, I've got a route, I'm 7224 AWS, and I'm receiving a route that says 7224. Oh, that's one of my routes. There must be a routing loop somewhere. I'm going to drop that, that route. I'm not going to accept it unless you modify the AS path, which can be a little bit complex. So in this case, BGP loop avoidance kicks in, and you can't go from region to region via your private network. So with bring your own ASN, you can now specify your ASNs. BGP's chill. There's no loops. We're good to go. 
All right. So bring your own BGP ASN. There are a few things to consider here. Direct Connect Gateway allows you to bring your own ASN too. We're going to get to Direct Connect Gateway. Is anyone using Direct Connect Gateway yet? I want to see some hands. There's a couple. Okay. What was that? No, it's not cross-account yet. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. That's one of my gripes. I'm a little upset about that one. Um, okay, so Direct Connect Gateway allows you to choose your ASN as well. So what happens if you've got a VGW, you've chosen your ASN, you've got a Direct Connect Gateway, you've chosen your ASN. Well, the Direct Connect Gateway is going to take precedence because the BGP session goes to the Direct Connect Gateway. And I think I've got a diagram about that. So, nice little segue there into AWS Direct Connect Gateway. It was launched about two weeks before reInvent, or maybe three weeks. So Direct Connect, firstly, I always throw this slide in here because um, the, I think this is a problem. With Direct Connect, it's, you don't get hands-on experience with it unless you buy a Direct Connect. Every other AWS service, it's awesome. You go, jump in there, you spin up a VPC, you spin up EMR, you spin up RDS, you can play around with it in a lab account. Hopefully you've got some credits or a company credit card. Um, <laughs> And um, you, can, you can spin up as much as you like, but Direct Connect is one of those things that you, it's a little bit difficult to get hands-on experience with. So I always throw this slide in here. It, it is entry level, but don't give me bad feedback for doing 101 stuff here. So you've basically got a Direct Connect. We've got a Direct Connect point of presence. We've got a customer router, a CPE, at a partner cage. We've got a cross connect, that little white line in the middle of the screen there, a service provider WAN connection back to your on-premises if you're not at the co-location facility. Then we have these things called public VIFs and private VIFs or virtual interfaces that you use to connect to a VPC and you use to connect to public services. So this is the anatomy of a direct connect connection. Now, to have a 300 level session, I normally need to put some code in here. This isn't code, I snuck this in. It's a configuration for a BGP router. Here's a bunch of things that make it look important. <laughs> it's, um, th this is a real configuration, by the way. So uh, sub-interface, we've got a VLAN there. We've got some BGP. Oh, we've got our ASN, the 65001. Um, we've got uh, the remote ASN, 7224. Um, we've got a BGP MD5. Cool. Uh, we're advertising default route. This is what a direct connect config actually looks like. And I tick that little checkbox to say I've got code in my presentation. Uh, okay, so what happens when I want to direct connect to multiple VPCs? In this case, we need multiple private virtual interfaces. So we need, there's a one-to-one -one relationship from a VPC to a VGW, which is the, the little lock icon that you, you see up there. So one-to-one -one VPC, VGW, private VIF then down to the VLAN and sub-interface, which whose config we just saw, and the CPE. So you need to build one private virtual interface for every VPC you want to connect to. There's a limit of 50 VIFs per direct connect too, so you could hit that limit. Also, each private virtual interface and each public virtual interface, but each private virtual interface needs to have a BGP session. So now you've got three BGP sessions that you need to manage. You're receiving three sets of routes from the VPCs. So many private virtual interfaces to manage means many BGP sessions to manage, and a, a maximum of 50 virtual interfaces per AWS Direct Connect. Enter AWS Direct Connect Gateway. Now I'll just take a little bit of a segue back to Transit VPC. When I talk to customers, they say, I want to build a Transit VPC, and I say, why? And they say, well, I've got one virtual interface, I've got a private VIF, 
and I'd like to share it with many VPCs. I say, well, that's great. You can just send that, that VIF to, to the multiple VGWs. And they say, I only want to manage one. So then they build one VPC. They build a set of uh, routed, virtual routed devices. They attach that VIF to that one VPC. They, don't, they then build an IPsec tunnels, two of them, to the devices. They then build IPsec tunnels down to the subsequent VPCs. It's getting pretty complex. But now they've met the requirement that they only have one infrastructure connection, one private virtual interface connecting to many VPCs. And they can also dynamically spin up VPCs as they want to. Our IPsec tunnels uh, on the VGW are all API fireball. Direct connect, unfortunately, you might need to have someone go and configure a direct connect on premise. So that's why some customers don't want to change that. So now with private link, we have one private virtual interface and we're using direct connect gateway to, to attach to multiple VPCs. So we don't need to change anything on the infrastructure side. We can just spin up VPCs, we can spin up VGWs, and we can attach them to the Direct Connect gateway. Pretty cool stuff. And now you've got an order of magnitude uh, number of VPCs that you can connect to. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. So there are some limitations. And I was actually asked, hey, Matt, we're launching this thing called Direct Connect Gateway. Do you think customers will use it if it's only in one account? I said, absolutely not. We can't launch this thing. We, we need to have multi-account. Um, but then they decided to launch it anyway. No one listens to me. So, <laughs> so I'm, fi I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for the customer. But uh, we, we shall see. All right, so one account. Also, this is a big one because we don't have any natting on uh, VGW. So we've got a 10.1, a 10.2, a 10.3. We've got these unique address ranges for each VPC. So each uh, VPC has to have a unique address range, otherwise things won't work. If we were going to have overlapping IP addresses, we probably need something like um, NAT at the VGW. We don't do NAT at the VGW. And there's some cool things you can do with Direct Connect. I have a customer that um, has a public uh, CEDAR address range or a public range they've got from, um, I think it was IANA or whoever allocates IP addresses. And, um, they configure their VPC with those public IPs. They then use Direct Connect to Direct Connect back to on-premise. We advertise those public IPs to their on-premise. They then use an internet gateway out into the public realm and advertise that same range. Now they've brought their own IP to AWS because their VPC is using that public range. They can do auto-scaling, they can burst and build a whole bunch of stuff in VPC, and it's their public IP range advertised out their internet connection over Direct Connect because there's no NAT on Direct Connect. But unfortunately, no NAT on a VGW means that we need to have unique IPs for each VPC, which you probably should do anyway. Alrighty, so multiple VIF attachments to a gateway, you can have up to 10. So 10 VIFs to one gateway. Multiple VGW attachments to one gateway, you can have up to 10. So our 50 VIF limit, so we have one VIF, direct connect gateway, you can now have 10 VPCs attached to that Direct Connect Gateway. You can have a total of 50 VIFs. You can now have a total of 500 VPCs per Direct Connect connection. So it's in order of magnitudes higher. Um, my argument to the product team was, if someone's gonna do 500 VPCs, they're probably not gonna be in the same account. So let's fix that, please. VIFs and VGWs can now be in any region this was really interesting. I had a lot of really interesting conversations with customers about cross-region private VIFs when it first came out because we didn't have inter-region peering. We'll talk about that. So what you can do 
We've got Region 1, we've got a Direct Connect Gateway, we've got a VGW, and Direct Connect Gateway actually spans regions, and the private virtual interface is connected that, to that DX Gateway, and you can now privately talk or communicate back to a VPC in another region. So this effectively means that you, don't, you no longer need to have a direct connect to a local region over here. Let's just say you're in, um, you're in Silicon Valley. I'm based out of SFO. So you're in Silicon Valley and you have a direct connect to our SFO region. You could then build a private virtual interface to that region. To get to Portland to have a private VIF, you'd have to build another direct connect and have another private VIF to the other region. In this case now, you just need one direct connect. And then you attach the VGW to that direct connect gateway. So now you can have a private VIF that goes all the way through to another region. So there are some disallowed data paths. That sounds nasty. It's not as bad as you think, but... So private VIF to private VIF. You can have multiple private VIFs attached to a direct connect gateway, but you can't go from one private VIF to another. So what we're seeing here is direct connect gateway is not a transitive device from the same type of entity. So private VIF to private VIF, you can't do that form of communications. You can't go from VGW to VGW. And remember I said I had some interesting conversations with customers, this was it. When we launched this, customers said, great, I've got inter-region peering now. I can just get a direct connect gateway. I don't need direct connect. I'm gonna have a VIF in one region, a VGW in one region, a VGW in another region, and then talk from one uh, VPC to another. Seems like it would make sense. Unfortunately, if we launched, whoops, if we launched this feature with this allowed data path, it would probably overrun our control plane and data plane for everyone wanting to do cross-region peering. Um, so we don't allow that data path. Also, if you do have a VPN connection attached to a VGW, you can't transit through the VGW from a VIF out the VPN connection. It's really designed for virtual interface to VPC or virtual interface to many, up to 10 VPCs. It's a pretty crazy architecture. This is from a couple of years ago. This is a real customer diagram. I hope I removed all the customer names in there. No, really, I've, I looked at this for a, a while, trying to make sure I got rid of all the content. But um, So this is, the customer wanted to have a multi-region direct connect. They've got a VPLS on the right-hand side. So a virtual private LAN server, so a layer two network that they had from a provider. And they've got one direct connect going to one region. They, they're then layer two, they use Q and Q, or um, 802.1Q tags inside 802.1Q tags. And they're basically tunneling those VLAN tags all the way through to their on-premise data center. Then they have another interface out here going to another region with another direct connect. And now they've basically got from their, their uh, one site with one connection, they've got multiple paths down to multiple regions. It's pretty complex. They've actually got uh, five BGP sessions in this case to manage. There's a bunch of configuration on the on-premise devices over here. So now with Direct Connect Gateway, we can get rid of all but one virtual interface. So let's delete those, let's scrap those. We get rid of our additional Direct Connect in another region because now we can use Direct Connect Gateway to go from one region to another. We get rid of our other VPLS connection from that data center back to our VPLS network. We scrap a bunch of our BGP sessions and we keep one because we only have one VIF now. And we scrap a bunch of our config except for one on the um, on-premise device. So now we basically have a very cut down and simple connectivity model where you've basically got one direct connect going all the way through to a direct connect gateway then connecting to many VPCs. So the idea here was we wanted to make things simple. And again, Transit VPC to achieve this um, does work, but it's quite complicated. With Direct Connect Gateway, it's quite easy. 
All right, Direct Connect Global Public Access. What does that mean? So again, we've got our uh, What's Direct Connect slide, and I'm just gonna put an emphasis on, I'll do that again, public services inside AWS. So you've got your um, VPC and you've got your public services, then you've got a public virtual interface, which is the, the green one up there. So that's talking to all your public services. What we have done previously, and up until a couple of weeks ago, this is how it worked. We had US West One, for example, which might be your local region. You've got an AWS Direct Connect. You're then receiving the US West One public routes. The public route table for AWS, I think it's around 3,000, or maybe 1,000. Um, it's in order of about 1,000 to 3,000-ish. But you receive a bunch of prefixes, BGP prefixes, for S3, DynamoDB, SQS, SNS, Lambda, IoT, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all those public services. If you're in North America, you'll get all of the continental routes. This was up until, this was 12 months ago. You would receive all of the continental routes. So you could actually go from a local connection in SFO again across all the way to US East to S3. Okay, so you had this cross-region connectivity with private VIFs. What we enabled a few weeks ago is global regional access. So now you can talk to S3 over in Dublin from San Francisco if you like. Okay, so you're going to receive all of those prefixes for all of those regions. So now you don't need to um, provision multiple direct connects or use a uh, carrier to do international um, carrier. You go over our backbone all the way to S3 or Dynamo or something in a remote region. So what we also do, you might say, well, I don't want to receive uh, thousands of routes. Uh, I'd like to only limit everything down to the continent, please, um, or the local region. So now we actually tag each of our prefixes with the BGP community. So the, and I did have the BGP communities in here, but I stripped them out. If you're interested in what they are and want to talk about that, come and see me after this. But a BGP community for local region routes, continental routes, and global routes. So you can filter on each one of those three and say, I'd like to only receive the local routes, please, or I'd like to receive everything, please. You can also advertise a BGP community to us and state, I'd only like to be advertised locally, or I'd like to be advertised globally, please. So anyone from a public region will come down that direct connect over the global connection, if you like. So you have that um, capability. We did a bunch of direct connect stuff. We're gonna come back to VPC. I didn't wanna make this thing too direct connect heavy because VPC is more interesting to me, even though I come from the physical connectivity world. But we deployed a bunch of points of presence. So the idea here was we want to get Direct Connect to you. Where are you located with your physical on-prem? Where do you want to build hybrid um, architectures? So we deployed, I think this is in the last 12 months. I don't even count how many of these were. So I did this slide, and then I was doing a session yesterday afternoon, uh, one of the chalk talks, and my counterpart, Nick Matthews, said, oh, hey, man, did you see they launched a whole bunch of new Direct Connect pops? I was like, oh. I have to go and update my slide deck. I have to go through tech review. I have to go through the tech check. There's a five-hour wait in the speaker room to get anyone to look at your slides. So I just added, and more. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more. There's more than this list. <laughs> and that, that was fine. That, that flew. That was OK. So some other things we didn't talk about. CloudWatch metrics for AWS Direct Connect, VPN, and NAT gateway. This is a cool one. Uh, you now get CloudWatch metrics for those. I don't actually have a slide on this because um, I thought I was going to go over time, but we're going pretty quick here. I hope I'm not speaking too fast for a lot of folks here. I understand sometimes I get a little bit um, quick with my tone. But... So how could I forget? This is one last big one. Inter-region VPC peering. 
Thank you. Thank you. Ah. I actually, um, I had these slides and I wasn't going to talk about inter-region peering. And then I heard someone said, hey man, did you hear we launched inter-region peering? And I'm like, what? I need to update my deck again. Um, so anyway, we launched inter-region peering and it's pretty awesome. This has been a long time coming. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that people have been doing to get from one region to another. And it's been painful. It's been, you need to configure a whole bunch of stuff. Let's, let's take a look at some of those things. So before inter-region peering, what, what did your architecture look like for one VPC in one region to connect to another VPC in another region? Well, there's this white paper. It's still up there. I, we haven't taken it down. It's like an AWS Answers thing. Uh, someone will probably get to it soon and take it down. But there's a, there's a bit.ly uh, link there if you want to go and read this thing. How do I connect multiple VPCs in different AWS regions? Someone spent a lot of time writing this thing. It's like about 20 pages. It's like a white paper. So here's one option. Uh, Internet-based VPN. Okay, so we have a VGW, and um, we're connecting back to some, what are we connected to? An on-premise, and then back to another region for this uh, VPC to VPC. So we have to go via our on-premise to go from one region to another. Think of the latency. I mean, well, if the diagram's geographically correct, we're going down to Antarctica and then coming across to <laughs> somewhere and then back into Europe. But, um, okay, so we're going via our on-premise. We don't need that anymore. Let's get rid of it. Let's scrap it. Corporate network backbone. Now, um, I am putting some massive big red crosses through this stuff. There are some times and some reasons why you want to do this still. I'm not saying don't do it. Disclaimer. So corporate network backbone. Customers have multiple direct connects. They have a corporate network backbone. They might be with like a, uh, maybe like an AT&T or Verizon or a level three. They've got this MPLS IPVPN. They've got direct connects and they're like, okay, well, if I've got two AWS regions, why don't I just route through here? It makes sense. You don't need that anymore. You can just say, I'm going to connect a peering connection. Great. Awesome. Software VPN appliances. There's a gentleman in AWS called Steve Murad. He's actually one of my heroes. Um, I, when I first joined Amazon, I uh, rang Steve up and I heard he was the networking guy in a AWS. I said, hey, Steve, I'm Matt. I'm a new AWS guy and let's talk about some cool stuff. And he went, hey, man, I barely passed my CCMP. Like, I, I don't know that much. But he has a very, um, he's very talented and spends a lot of time focusing on deeper level architecture. And that, that's actually his job now. He used to be a solution architect. He built a white paper on let's build VPN or software VPN connectivity from region to region or VPC to VPC. So now you've got a redundant IPsec instances, so four instances in total. There's, some, uh, there's a Watcher instance, I think, or maybe that's been replaced by Lambda now, and we're, we've got high available VPN from instance to instance. And then there's a bunch of other stuff out there on... I've got a VPN instance, and I can only get 500 meg of IPsec. How do I get more? Okay, well, you probably want to enha enable enhanced networking. Uh, you want SRIV, clearly. Maybe you want DPDK, I don't know. Uh, depends on what software you're using. Um, I probably need to right-size my instances. I need to have some kind of redundancy. There's a whole bunch of things that go into thinking about this sort of stuff to increase your performance. I spent a week with a customer once because they were seeing random traffic drop drops on their connectivity between regions. They were using, um, they were using a vendor's device and using a, a full mesh connectivity thing and then it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, they just saw a dip in their traffic and that wasn't acceptable because what happens during peak time? And um, it was the instances and it was actually a bug in the software that we found. So should we get rid of this one? Yeah, let's get rid of this one. We don't need that anymore. 
Okay, transit VPC for cross-region connectivity. So we've, we've talked about transit VPCs a lot. I get a, get a lot of, uh, as a network specialist, we have this system called SpecRec, and it's where AWS SAs can put in a trouble ticket and say, I want to get an AOD networking expert on the line with my customer. So we can come out and talk to you folks. And I think we, we checked it out and uh, we took 15 tickets and the last 14 tickets over a, a one week period or something were all about transit VPC. Everyone wanted to talk about transit VPC. Well now with cross-region, um, inter-region peering, we can hopefully get rid of that one. Now this is a little bit different if we just go back to this. This is you've got a transit VPC in one region using a VGW on the other sites to, re to reduce your complexity. So you reduce your complexity by about 50%. With this one, you could have transit VPCs in multiple VPCs and then use something like a Cisco CSR with DMVPN and have like a, a dynamic mesh multipoint set up. Um, it sounds too complicated, I think. Let's get, <laughs> Let's get rid of it. Inter-region peering, I mean, I don't have many slides on actual inter-region peering because it's pretty straightforward. We've got an AWS region, we've got a VPC in one region, we've got a VPC in another region. They'd like to talk to each other, so we set up a peering connection. It's pretty much similar to, <laughs> it's pretty easy, right? So simple. There, there are a few points and a few notes. And this is actually taken from our public announcement, um, so you can read the full uh, blurb, but inter-region peering encrypts with no single point of failure or bandwidth bottleneck. That's pretty awesome. When we, um, we first went out and talked to uh, customers and we said, okay, you want inter-region peering, all right, um, we, can probably, uh, we can probably maybe stitch two VGWs together. VGWs today don't initiate IPsec traffic. So you take a VGW, you can't connect it to another VGW, you've got to have an instance on the other side, hence the whole transit VPC stuff. He said, okay, well, what if we've got two VGWs and stitch them together? Then we've kind of got transit VPC. Um, but the problem is then you've got, um, on a VGW, about 1.25 gig worth of IPsec traffic. So we said to customers, we can give you encryption, but we only give you 1.25 gig of encryption. Not acceptable. Okay, so we need no bottlenecks. What about if we got rid of encryption? We just had peering, no encryption. Because encryption is tough. Encryption is hard to do. You need to process every packet. There's hardware crypto offload and um, a whole bunch of other stuff that you can do. It's interesting with EC2 instances, um, the behavior of IPsec, and I hope there's gonna be some changes in the future and more performance. However, um, the main point was that our customers wanted encryption and they didn't want bandwidth bottlenecks, and that was an extremely difficult thing to, to achieve. Um, Traffic using inter-region peering always stays on the AWS uh, global backbone or the global AWS backbone. This is pretty important too. So we used to tell people, hey, we've got this awesome connectivity between uh, two AWS regions. And um, if you check out some of James Hamilton's talks from last year's, and I haven't seen Peter DeSantos' talk this year, but I heard it was pretty awesome too. But I know James talked about our backbone and, and what it actually looks like these days. And it's, it's pretty amazing. As James says, he'll say, it's phenomenal. He uses phenomenal about 10 times in his prezzo. But um, staying on the AWS backbone was something we didn't normally admit to. So we'd say, hey, inter-region connectivity, uh, we may punch you out onto the public internet if we you know, run out of bandwidth or our backbone does something, we may use one of our partners. With inter-region um, peering, VPC peering, you'll always stay on our backbone. And with that confident in our backbone, the backbone's actually amazing, it's unbelievable. It's phenomenal. Okay, so available in US East, US, uh, US East, North Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, and Ireland. I'm pretty sure this list is probably gonna grow 
It obviously is. Uh, so more regions are coming soon. So, um, but these are the regions you can do VPC um, peering with. So pretty awesome stuff. All right, let's bring it all back together. We've got a couple of minutes left. I'm not going to take Q&A afterwards, but I am going to hang around. I've got nothing going on um, for a little bit, so I'd love to talk to you guys. Before we get into this last section, though, I will say that um, evaluation is really important to us. I do need to say this spiel. Um, if I get too many fours, I probably won't come to reInvent next year, but evaluate me honestly, uh, please. And we read every single piece of feedback, and I incorporate those changes into my decks for following you. So write some blurbs in there. Uh, if you know any funny jokes, throw them in there, too. I love jokes. Okay, so we had our, our topology from 12 months ago. What does it look like now? So what's changed? And thanks to the folks who are heading out now. I appreciate you coming along. All right. So we had VPC, uh, IPv6 for VPC. We had security group rule descriptions. That's pretty cool. We have multiple CEDAR address ranges. Expand your existing VPC. My challenge was to fit this all on one slide, but I actually turned it into three. And we delete a few things, but not too much. Okay, so the VGW, uh, VPN, so bring your own tunnel, IP, and custom pre-shared key. Interregion, VPC peering, yes, thank you. Now that's the, the part I delete, but uh, now we have Direct Connect Gateway. So Direct Connect had a whole bunch of stuff going on. Link aggregation, which we didn't even talk about. Um, so you can aggregate uh, Direct Connect links together if they're on the same devices. And if you want to chat about Link Ag, come see me. Um, new pops, a bunch of new pops, global public access, Direct Connect Gateway was huge, so cross-region uh, private VIFs. I just deleted a NAT gateway, whoops. And then we had Private Link. We all forgot about Private Link while we are talking about Direct Connect, but now we have interfaces that you can bring into your uh, EC2 instance to connect to things like um, your API endpoints for EC2, also your service provider endpoints as well, CloudWatch metrics for VPN, DX, and NAT gateway, and I think that's it. This is what it looks like now today. I might have missed something, but it's pretty awesome. A lot of changes in the last 12 months. It's been uh, pretty exciting times. Okay, thanks everyone. Now, I do have two slides to close it out. Um, we wrote a book this year as well. Um, so I'm one of the authors. I don't get any royalties whatsoever. I don't even think I got a free lunch for this, but... Um, <laughs> I do want to say that um, we wrote an exam, the Networking Specialist Certification Exam. If you want to chat about that, come talk to me. I probably can't say much, but um, we wrote a book to help people get familiar with AWS networking. And a lot of the stuff that's in this presentation and other networking stuff is all in this book. We actually had a bunch of stuff that we were writing for the book, and we're like, we don't know if it's going to be released by the time the book gets published. It's available Feb, but I think the Wiley booth is actually pre-selling copies or something. Um, I think Wiley makes a lot of money out of that. I don't know. Um, anyway, a bunch of uh, stuff you should go check out. Some of this stuff's already happened. If not, or if you miss it, check it out on YouTube. The YouTubes are generally up within about 24 hours. That's all I've got for you folks today. I'll be hanging around up here as long as I can. Otherwise, enjoy your reInvent. Thank you.